Welcome to Fables of Our Deconstruction, a podcast where we examine our systems of faith and culture together as we grow as people. I'm your host, Dylan. If you like what you hear, check me out at patreon.com slash Dylan. If you'd like to be on a future episode, leave me a message at 515-318-7569 or find Fables of Our Deconstruction on Anchor FM and leave me a voice message. Leave your name, otherwise I will keep you anonymous. Let's get into it! Before we jump into this, I just want to let you know that this episode was recorded at the very beginning of June, I believe on June 6th. Um, I am troubled, (laughs) the world has been difficult, and it's been weighing heavily on my shoulders. This part has been recorded on June 21st, just to let you know the disparity. Uh, But I still think the subject matter is important, so I'm going to leave it as it is. Alright, well, I hope you enjoy it. I want to start this off by giving you a content warning. I am going to discuss things such as gun violence in the United States. If that's not for you, you can skip this episode in its entirety. I completely understand, and I realize this might feel like I'm beating a dead horse, but I think it's important for you to know where I stand, and I think I have some interesting content to discuss. So, here we go. We all know what's going on in the U.S. right now. It definitely feels... Like we're having near weekly shootings. And that's sickening, upsetting, maddening. There's not enough adjectives to describe exactly how it feels. Especially if you take a step back and notice that since the late 90s, we've been discussing them less and less as a country. Only when it is big or dramatic in a specific sense do we take a look at this and say, hey, this happened, and something's wrong. And it breaks my heart. I have literally lost sleep over it last week, and I had recorded last week's episode just before knowing what had taken place in Texas. So I let the episode come out the way it was, because I didn't want to focus on it so much that I was going to throw away what I wanted to talk about, because the rest of the world was going to talk about it. And they did. If you want great resources, um, you can check out NPR. They do a great job. And I also recommend checking out podcasts such as The Thinking Atheist or even Cognitive Dissonance or The Scathing Atheist for different viewpoints that you might not be hearing on it. Because there are things that atheism relates to in these stories and things that we can be critical of. Even though this is deeply challenging for us to deal with. Uh, But I want to talk about something specific today. And I I think we need to start by saying it's baffling that legislators, that elected officials, feel like when we say, hey, what are you going to do about this? That we're somehow politicizing it. That's some of the language we've heard from people like Ted Cruz. Where if you follow me on Twitter you may have seen me say that. Ted Cruz is an insult to goblins. And I know our room isn't 
for insulting people, and we probably shouldn't be doing that, but it's so fucking frustrating to not have an answer that it's easy to get combative. So I apologize if I insult someone. I'm not trying to necessarily beat them up, but something needs to be done. And yet these individuals, uh, specifically the governor in Texas, saying like, whoa, 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 don't politicize this is just maddening to me uh, because politicians especially those in congress make laws right and laws are what we need to decide how we're going to move forward how do we treat these situations how do we try to prevent these situations uh, and there's so much back and forth on what to do that i've realized we are digging deep into the realm of cognitive dissonance. And that's what I think we should talk about today is cognitive dissonance because we require a lot of cognitive dissonance for us to function within faith spaces. And I think that that's fairly self-evident, uh, but maybe we should unpack this a bit and discuss what that means. But before I get further, I want to say that uh, the topic that I just covered about you know making laws is a part of what you do, so clearly it's going to be political. Uh, if you want to hear more about that, go listen to Cognitive Dissonance from this week. I'll link to it in the show notes. They they covered it really well, and so I don't want to I don't want to cover their ground since we're both in a similar space. I want to try to cover my ground. Uh, so we're going to unpack the term cognitive dissonance. It's super powerful right now. It's exactly what we're going through consistently in the U.S. And if you're trying to think more critically, you will realize that a lot of our politics, especially in this upcoming primary season, is riddled with it. Uh, it seems that those who latch on to things like fetal heartbeats or pulses also latch on to gun rights in a big bad way. And I know it's kind of a hard pill to swallow and it's not something we want to consistently be digesting, but the desperate grabbing many people have to force someone to give birth is very tied up with the same desperate grabbing that you shall never take my gun never until you've ripped it from my cold dead hands and yet these guns are taking lives and now lives of children uh, and not even just now that's been going on since the beginning since I was in third, nah, fourth or fifth grade in Columbine took place. I don't even think of that as the name of a school. It's an event. It's something that we sat in our desks in South Dakota through and wondered why this would happen. And we were told it was a freak incident and it would never happen again. And here it is happening constantly. And so this whole idea of like, you need to be forced to have this baby, but we also need to have the freedom to shoot each other. So we need to embrace it because there's a heartbeat, supposedly, even though there's a lot of evidence that that is not a heartbeat. We could get into that, but we're not going to. However, we also need to have the ability for anyone to stop a heartbeat at any time. And my question is, how do you, how do you live with that? So let's get into cognitive dissonance because I think those, that, that's related. Oxford defines cognitive dissonance as the state of having inconsistent thoughts, beliefs, or attitudes, especially as relating to behavioral decisions and attitude change. 
I did a little digging, and I, I want to say, you know, Wikipedia is not the most reliable place in the world, so it's always good to check their sources and see how they're performing. But cognitive dissonance has been a big part of psychology for so long that I feel like this page is, is pretty accurate. Uh, so they, they discussed uh, three kinds of relationships that you can create when, when discovering cognitive dissonance. Uh, so the first one is the consonant re relationship. Excuse me. A consonant relationship contains two cognitions or actions consistent with each other. The example is not wanting to become drunk when you're out to dinner, so you order water in instead of wine, right? So if you don't want to become drunk, don't drink. Uh, and if you have those two cognitive states, I don't want to drink, so I won't drink, it complements. It's a consonant relationship. Then we have an irrelevant relationship. Uh, their example is, or excuse me, let's define that first. Two cognitions or actions that are unrelated to each other. The example is not, want to be, not wanting to become drunk when out and then wearing a shirt. Clearly what you wear has almost nothing to do, if not anything at all, to do with your desire to drink or not drink. So choosing to wear a shirt has nothing to do with your interest in not becoming drunk. It's an irrelevant relationship. The third and final one is a dissonant relationship. This would be two cognitions or actions inconsistent with each other. The example being not wanting to become drunk when out, but then drinking wine anyway even drinking more wine and I slap my head when I read this because I'm like god damn it I do this with food like I'll tell myself I want to eat better because I want to feel better about my body and I do want to lose some weight but this whole Memorial Day weekend I'm gonna eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and I'm gonna eat donuts and I'm gonna eat bread and I'm gonna go bananas on all the food that I identify as junk food that's not good for me. I want to feel better about myself, I want to lose weight, but I'm not going to do anything about it. <laughs> so like that's cognitive dissonance in a bag right there. And I feel like the more we unpack that, the more we become aware of these dissonant relationships and we understand what's irrelevant and we learn what's consonant, what, what complements, we can start creating frameworks for a healthier outcome. So if we realize that, like, if you're going to be truly pro-life, if that's the stance you want to take, then you got to do something about guns, right? If I want to truly take care of my body, I got to do something. Now, I've noticed the issues I have when it comes to my body, right? Um, I've, I've gone through extreme weight loss before. I've added pounds back on. And I realize it's weird to, to, to compare these two things, but I think it's important. And sorry if you could hear the dog. Um, it's, it's an important way for me to process this. Uh, so I know that working out for me is hard because my brain goes and goes. If you hear how I talk, you could probably be aware that my brain just likes to run. And working out makes me realize that I, a, a man with disabilities, can't work out the way other people do. So if I'm trying to lift or do push-ups or something, all I'm thinking about is how I'm messed up and I'm not working right and people are going to notice it and whoever I'm with might want to help me or correct me, but I don't know the answer either. It's just going to make me frustrated and I don't want to take care of my body. However, recently my wife and I have taken up playing tennis and that to me is more interesting. I've, you know, I have very little tennis experience, but I can shut my brain off because my brain's only goal is 
get to the ball, hit the ball, get to the ball, hit the ball, get to the ball, hit the ball. And, you know, there, there's outcomes for for avoiding or, or for, for what to do if I, if I miss the ball, right? But I'm not thinking about, like, how's my body, what's going on at work, and it helps me do something. So the constant relationship I can perform is I want to feel better about my body, therefore I'm going to play tennis because it complements how my brain works. That's a little better for me than trying to say I'm going to do 100 push-ups every day because I have a, a bad relationship with those push-ups. It's so maybe someday I can do them, but instead of setting that goal, maybe I should set a goal that works. And I think we need to do that with everything in our lives. We need to find the dissonant relationships we have. Here's another example from my life. I have a dry scalp, but I'm always trying to find ways to fix it because I hate my scratchy head, right? It's horrible and it gets flaky. Uh, so I tried things like putting apple cider vinegar on my head. And I told my wife, hey, I think I can tell it's working because it hurts. It burns a bit. I didn't really see any improvements from that. I definitely had cider on my head. Uh, apple cider vinegar on my head. But, you know, realizing that, like, it hurts is why it's working isn't always the right answer. Usually something that helps provides relief. Uh, you know, and your side effects aren't pain related to the thing. Unless you're, you know, surgery on a leg. Your leg will still hurt, but it'll hurt less when time goes on. I was going to hurt every time I put the vinegar on my head. So that, that sounds to me like a dissonant relationship, right? And so I would rather find a consonant relationship, one where I go, hey, I'm seeking relief, and this thing that has some sort of evidence is providing me relief. More than just anecdotal evidence, which I think we should spend a lot more time on on this podcast, on how to define different types of evidence. So when I look at the state of the world and the fact that the U.S. is the primary country where all of these gun tragedies happen on a regular basis, like it's more likely going to happen than it won't at this point, and I hate to say that, then we need to create a consonant relationship between how we're, how we're trying to change this and what we're doing. There's such weird arguments about, like, slamming a school full of weapons, right? Stick a bunch of cops in there, arm the teachers, you know? You create a bunch of quote-unquote good guys with guns. Uh, and why is it that when guns are something that's so easily obtained, we want to just put more into the equation? It's, it's mind-blowing. So what can be a consonant relationship? What can be an action we can take that actually makes sense to we want to reduce gun violence right i'm not even going to try to give you an answer i just want you to think on it now that brings me to our next segment this part i think is is a little bit of a, a derailment and maybe we can talk about something a little bit lighter uh, but i want to talk about thoughts and prayers <laughs> because when we're looking at tragedies or even when we're looking at something in our own lives, like I had a, rel a relative uh, pass away recently from sudden cancer. Like it was diagnosed suddenly and then suddenly they were gone. And that's, that's difficult, right? Now for me, they were slightly distant, so I'm managing it pretty well. But imagine if you're in the shoes where someone you know is suddenly ill and everyone's offering you thoughts and prayers, right? Uh, that it seems beneficial when there's literally nothing you can do. But what about things where we can do something? If you say, let's just say you type out on a Facebook, 
hey, I really can't find a job right now. I think I'm going to go broke. Life sucks. And everyone says thoughts and prayers. Well, this is something where there can be action, right? I'm sending you my thoughts and my prayers. Hopefully you get a job soon. But no one's taking action. Imagine if someone's like, hey, there's a sweet opening at my company. Here's a link. That's more active, right? And I'm trying to, you know, divorce these things from the state of the world so we can talk about them in a way that's easier to, like, pry it open without feeling estranged from what we're trying to do. So I went digging and I found this article from Inc. Uh, Inc is typically okay. I do recommend everybody do your, your own uh, uh, vetting of all your sources, but Inc is actually referring to a study from NYU, so we're going to talk about it. And I'm just going to read the article. This is also a chance for me to learn to read more slowly by practicing. So Inc says, Research reveals that publicly announcing your goals makes you less likely to achieve them. If you thought that telling everyone your goals creates accountability, think again. Written by Melissa Chu. Common belief dictates that publicly announcing your goals increases the chances of success. When you tell everyone that you're going to jog every day, then you feel pressure to have to follow through on your goals. Otherwise, you let everyone down. At least, that's what many of us believe. I've done this often myself. After all, it feels nice to announce all the things I want to achieve in the future. However, research at NYU, led by Peter Galwitzer, shows the opposite. Sorry about that name, Peter. I will do my best to pronounce it appropriately. The gap between intentions and results. In Galwitzer's study, 49 psychology students at a German university were asked to fill out a questionnaire on their commitment to becoming a psychologist. I think 49 is a little small, but we're still going to acknowledge this. Next, the participants were asked to write down their two most important study intentions for the week. Such as, I will take a reading assignment more seriously, or I will study more statistics. One group of participants had their intentions read by the experimenter under the assumption that the participant had completed the assignment correctly. The second group, however, was told that the questionnaire had been wrongly included and would therefore be discarded. In other words, their intentions went unnoticed. One week later, the students were emailed a second questionnaire. They were required to write down their behavior uh, their behavioral intentions listed previously, and then indicate exactly which days of the week they had acted on on each intention. The completed questionnaire was brought to the experimenter, where the students received payment or course credit. In the result of the study, the subsequent studies performed on other students, the experimenters found that the students whose intentions were known tended to act less on their intentions than those whose intentions were unknown. The research concluded that telling people what you want to achieve creates a premature sense of completeness. While you feel a sense of pride in letting people know what you intend to do, that pride doesn't motivate you and can in fact hurt you later on. When you write down or think about your intentions, there's a gap between where you are and where you want to be. The compelling need to close this gap helps you act on your intentions. But when you let others know about it, the gap closes because you, artificially, Feel the same way you should after completing the intention. The main takeaway is, you're better off keeping your thoughts and plans to yourself if you want to get things done. The next time you want to complete a goal, put your head down and get to it, instead of telling everyone around you. Now the reason I include this, and it might seem <laughs> dissonant, is that I feel that thoughts and, rares fill this, uh, thoughts and prayers fill this role religiously. 
And when I say religiously, I mean through those of us who still have faith or religion in our lives. Uh, I think saying, oh, thoughts and prayers about that job that you, you haven't been able to land uh, is basically saying someone else will solve the problem. You want to tell someone that you're there, but you don't actually want to do anything. And I think this could be really dangerous when we look at things like, and we're going to bring this back full circle, when we look at things like gun control. When a big tragedy happens, especially here in the U.S. because they happen constantly, and people just spread thoughts and prayers, we're saying someone else is going to take care of it. And what's even worse, in my opinion, is that that someone else is God. And unfortunately, from my experience, God doesn't show up. The people who show up are people, human beings. People who care and want to take action. So if your friend on Facebook says they need a job and you've got a resource, maybe offer them that resource instead of just saying, hey, I'm thinking about you, I'll pray for you to get that job. Because we got to think about when is it useful for someone else to solve the problem and when is it not? When is it our time to solve a problem? So to go back around to a cognitive dissonance the podcast talked about and what I think really spurred me on today, if you're a lawmaker, it is always something that you need to be considering. Tragedy, anything, anything that might need or ask for change is absolutely political because it's in your hands and you're a politician. You need to think about what you can do. And for the rest of us, Anytime something happens that impacts us, we need to think about who should be solving this problem. Someone else? Or is it us? Sure, there's a chance a meteorite could land and blow this earth to smithereens, but I trust that there are astrophysicists, scientists, people with understanding of rocketry that are thinking about these problems. They're actually doing something. So when I say, I trust there's an expert out there that's working on this problem that I can't be working on, that's not thoughts and prayers. That's knowing that these experts exist. That's knowing that someone's on it, right? Earth is a single point failure. We don't want that, so we got to do find ways to pre prevent anything from happening. But if we just say, someone out there, something in the grand order will take care of this, that in and of itself is taking care of nothing. If we can't identify who's on top of it, like our lawmakers should be, then we need to figure out how we can be on top of it and who amongst us can help solve these problems. So think about it. Next time you hope someone else will take care of a problem, is there someone there or is there no one at all? Is this a consonant relationship or a dissonant relationship? I hope we can come to the bottom of all these things, but we always need to constantly think about what we're doing and why. And I think that's really what we're here for. So I, I think I'll leave you on that. This has been Fables of Our Deconstruction. Fables of Our Deconstruction is created by me, Dylan Jacobson. Please like and review Fables wherever you get your podcasts. And join my community, The Brimstone Order, at patreon.com slash Dylan. That's D-Y-L-A-N. I'd like to thank Apes of the State for the use of their song Moments a Year From Now as my intro and outro. And remember, even when we're riddled with cognitive dissonance, you're never alone. 
and we are in this together.